Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week, Pastor Paul will be preaching a sermon out of Matthew chapter 2, titled, Wise Men Still Ask for Directions. On New Year's, we had a special one-service Sunday. This included special worship, a special love feast, and a special sermon reflecting on the previous year. We take time to reflect on how God has demonstrated His faithfulness in our past and how that gives us confidence in our future. God is faithful to be present in our lives if we give Him permission. So, uh, can we say Happy New Year to all of those who are joining us in worship on live stream? Can we say Happy New Year? Yes. It's such a privilege again to celebrate the beginning of 2023 with you. What do the following people have in common? This is a quiz. Sidney Poitier, Orrin Hatch, Naomi Judd, Bill Russell, Vince Scully, Olivia Newton-John, Mikhail Gorbachev, Queen Elizabeth II, Jerry Lee Lewis, Franco Harris, Barbara Walters, and Pope Benedict. Very diverse group there, by the way. But they all have one thing in common. They died in 2023. Yes. Maybe I'm going to die in 2023. <laughs> oh. This is a reality check. Whenever I, I go on to the news and I, I read the story of everyone who died during the year, maybe as I get older, just the, the reality that we all finish this life the same way. We all die. It's kind of scary because some of those folks are just a little older than me, too. The older I get, the more I value memorial services. They provide me with a gift, another opportunity to reflect on the meaning of my life. As Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of what? Wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to number our days. And I've been praying that song, teach me to number my days that I might finish well, because I, have, I know many who haven't finished well. New Year's also provides us with this gift. It's a chance to pause and ask afresh the great first order questions of life. Who am I? Where am I? And why am I? The great, great questions. Oftentimes we get going so fast and busy or medicate ourselves in such a way that we never pause to ask the who am I, the where am I, and the why am I. And I would add for a follower of Jesus, who is God? Where is God working in my world? And how can I join him? Those would be the next three. This is our focus this morning. We will discover how God is relentlessly seeking our attention, inviting us to ask these questions anew with every new season of our lives. Are you ready? Are you ready to ask those questions? Three of us are ready. <laughs> By the way, why are we still on the Christmas thing? Just a little history. 
Before the ancient church ever celebrated Christmas as a holy day, it celebrated Epiphany. Epiphany means manifestation. Epiphany celebrates the story of how God has been manifested or revealed to the whole world, not just to the religious insiders, but to everyone through the birth of a king. Epiphany is also known as Three Kings Day. For millions of Christians around the world, Epiphany, i.e. this Friday, January 6th, is Christmas. So can we say to one another again, Merry Christmas! (laughs) Let's make the most of the season. Can we linger in it a little more? I know some of you have taken your trees down, taken your lights down. My goal is to keep my lights up all month long of January, to let people know uh, that this Christ is still alive, shining. So let's pray together. God, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Can you say that with me? We welcome you here. Fill my mind. Fill my body. Fill my emotions. Fill my imagination. You are welcome here. Amen. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, would you join and be the Magi today? Who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so a year has passed between Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. Jesus is no longer in a stable He's now the age of my grandson, Macklin, one to two-year-old toddler. Bethlehem is just seven miles south of Jerusalem. The name of the city is actually based on two Hebrew words. Beth is city, and lehem, can you say that with me, lehem, is bread. It's literally the city of bread a royal town with a very special history. There's a Bible quiz, which king was born in Bethlehem? David, very good. Bethlehem is located today in what is called the West Bank, the Palestinian territory bordered by a huge wall. I took this photo in Bethlehem. This wall has very different meaning in the Holy Land. Some Israelis call it a security wall, and some residents of Bethlehem call it an apartheid wall. Residents who have to go through multiple security checks just to enter Jerusalem. Friends, would you pray that the work of justice and reconciliation in this divided part of the world would continue? The hopes and fears of all the years continue to ache in many of their hearts. Back to Matthew 2. So who are these visitors? I hope this is not a shock to you, but I'm going to do a little bit of a Christmas deconstruction today. They were not kings, and there's not three. (laughs) They are magi. English translations use a variety of titles. A band of scholars, for example. Wise men, seers, or astrologers. 
They're literally, quote, magi from the east. From the east in the Greek is from the rising. Which way is east, guys? <laughs> They're magi from that direction. But who are they and where do they come from? Can I geek out a little bit with you? I know it's not what you'd normally do on New Year's Day. But let's do a little history and theology this morning, can we? There are two primary theories about Magi. The first theory is, according to the historian, Greek historian Herodotus, Magi were mem members of the Persian priestly caste who specialized in astronomy, astrology, interpretation of dreams, magic. Originally from Babylon, modern-day Iraq. If that's so, they traveled 900 miles, four months, to see this new king. But other historians, more recent ones, Justin Martyr from the second century AD, suggest the Magi were from the desert of Arabia, so that'd be closer, specifically from the Nabataean kingdom, which is famously known from the ruins of Petra in Jordan. I've been there, they're unbelievable. The Arabian theory is also supported by biblical passages like Isaiah 60 and Psalm 72. But whether they're from Persia or Arabia, we know this. They are definitely outsiders. They are non-Jewish seekers who are on a quest, a quest to worship the true king of the Jews. I don't know why it is, but when I think of Magi, I have a lot of friends who are Persian, and they adore a poet by the name of Rumi. I think the Magi were like Rumi, the 13th century Sufi mystic who spent his life on a spiritual quest. Many of his words ring true for many of us. When the world, quote, pushes you to your knees, you're in a perfect position to pray. <laughs> or another quote, maybe you're searching among the branches for what only appears in the roots. Rumi was not a follower of the God of the Bible, but many seekers around the world have found that his words give voice to their quest. I believe Rumi would be at home among the Magi. Do you know any Rumis that are on a quest? If we can continue to geek out, what about the star? Pastors love to speculate on this. Uh, I need to be honest with you, it's not clear. There are three primary theories. First of all, some believe it was an astronomical event, like an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn uh, at a certain point in history, like a comet or a supernova. Others believe it's a supernatural astral experience, like the biblical pillar of fire in the Old Testament. And others believe it was an angelic uh, manifestation that led them along and appeared to them like a star. My opinion is it's a little bit of all three. From a biblical perspective, stars are a wonderful part of God's amazing creation. By the way, we have never in all history had such an amazing window on the universe because in 2022, we got our first visual images from the James Webb Space Telescope. I was listening to a podcast this week 
featuring an astrophysicist who said the photos literally brought her to tears. <laughs> she even talked about having her cat next to her, crying together with her cat. I love it, an astrophysicist with her cat crying about the beauty of these images from the James Webb. You see, in Genesis, God, by his creative word, spoke creation into existence. He set the stars in the sky, along with the sun and the moon, to give light, to govern day and night. And then he stood back, and what did God say? He saw that it was very good. And so do we. Psalms 147, 148, Psalm 19, celebrate the celestial handiwork of our Creator. So why was an astral event so significant to the Magi? In the ancient world, I can't under, overestimate this, the stars were like the internet is to us today. <laughs> Ubiquitous. Soon, for example, after Julius Caesar's death, a great comet appeared in the sky for seven days in July of 44 B.C., you can look today at Roman coins from this era. On one side, they have Caesar's image. On the other, an image of this comet with the inscription, the divine Julius. And Balaam's oracle in Numbers chapter 24 included these words, a star will come out of Jacob and a ruler will rise out of Israel to deliver his people. The appearance of stars in the ancient world signified cosmic, social, spiritual, and political shifts. So it makes sense that the Magi would travel uh, months to see this king because there was a connection between the king and the stars. Why did the Magi say they were on this quest in verse 2? So we can worship him. The goal of their quest was to adore this new king. Verse 3, when Herod, however, everybody, when I say the name Herod, you can all go, yes, heard this, he was troubled along with all Jerusalem with him. You see, Herod was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C., and according to scholar Ken Bailey, he was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. <laughs> this incredible mix of contrasting and opposing forces created a fear for his throne that bordered on madness. That madness turned easily into violence. His brother-in-law became a bit too popular, so Herod had him drowned at a palace party in the pool. He murdered his favorite wife, one of ten, by the way, along with three of his own sons. Caesar himself is recorded to have said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. A nice guy. So what is Herod's reaction to rumors of a child king? The, Hebrew, the Greek word is he was disturbed. Terasso means he was stirred up. He was, we would use the word triggered. He was royally triggered. Why? Why was he triggered? He was threatened by the possibility of another Lord. 
Now, some of us love the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody in this room? And in The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, when rumors that Aslan is afoot, what does the White Witch do? She goes on a murderous rage because she knows her time is short. Romans 1 says we all have these little Herods inside of us. (laughs) When God's truth is revealed to us by nature, do we welcome it? (laughs) We avoid it and we suppress it. Human beings have become very skilled at murdering truth, resisting anything that is a threat to ourselves remaining on the throne of life. N.T. Wright, theologian, says Matthew 2 is political dynamite. It's implying that the king of the Jews installed by the Roman Empire is not the true king. Are you with me, guys? Another king is afoot. Verse 4. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Can you be Micah now? And you, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod gathers the religious elite, the chief priests, like the senior pastors, and the scribes, the Bible scholars. Chief priests were the leading civil and religious authorities among the Jews. As members of the ruling council, they were political liaisons with the Romans, managers of the temple and sacrificial system. It was was almost like having the authority of the U.S. president, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and the pope, all in one council. It was kind of an oligarchy of privilege in Israel. And they maintained their position by their collusion with political power. And this, sadly, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of history, is a tragic pattern in church history. Religious leaders colluding with tyrannical rulers or political parties for self-serving purposes. Has that ever happened? (laughs) In order to maintain their own status and advancement in society, read about the behavior of religious leaders in Hitler's Germany. Read about the behavior of religious leaders in Mussolini's Italy. Read about the current behavior of some religious leaders in Putin's Russia. I could go on, would you like me to? But this unholy collusion is only possible if we ignore parts of the scriptures. And this is the case here. Note the irony. When asked by Herod where the Messiah was to be born, the senior pastors and Bible scholars can quote verses from their Bibles, but they're actually too busy to go down the road seven miles to see this new king for themselves. Is that an irony? Jesus later addressed this misuse of the Bible when he declared in John 5, y'all search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Friends, it's possible to have bits of Bible knowledge, 
but miss the whole point of the story. So let's see what the Bible scholars missed. Can we? Can we zoom out and see how the prophet Micah is fitting into the larger story of restoration? Micah reveals a God, this is from the Bible Project, by the way, who delights in covenant love, who seeks to bring his unfaithful people to repentance and to restoration, and then to toss their sins into the depths of the sea. But first, Micah has to confront Israel's leaders. You see, the kings of Israel had become wealthy from corruption and injustice. Prophets were charlatans who preached for hire what the people wanted to hear, and priests had become power brokers instead of good shepherds. How do you think Micah responded to this? This sounds exactly about what was happening with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Micah warns of a coming disaster, the destruction of Jerusalem, which, by the way, took place not only in 586 B.C., but in 70 A.D., and the resulting exile of God's people. But Micah closes always with a word of hope. God will come like a true good shepherd and deliver his faithful remnant. He will restore his temple, reunite heaven and earth, and make it a place where all nations, not just religious insiders, but all nations will stream and be healed. Listen to the beautiful imagery of restoration in Micah 4. I love this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. The word is ethne, many nations will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Listen, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone, I love this image, will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Like, that's like I had it made. <laughs> and no one will make them afraid. The Lord Almighty has spoken. What a beautiful image of a restoration. How will God accomplish this great restoration? Through a child born in Bethlehem. Micah 5. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. God will show mercy and covenant love to his people. Judgment is not the final word. Keep, he will keep his good promises given to Abraham. He will bring to them a new king who will bring full restoration and cast their sins into the depths of the sea. What is my point in, in really marinating in Micah is the senior pastors and Bible scholars could quote Micah but missed Micah's whole message. You guys with me? We do the same. They missed how that message called them personally to repentance, and most of all, they missed how that message pointed to the Messiah right under their nose, just seven miles south in the little town of Bethlehem. Well, meanwhile, back to Herod. 
Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Jerusalem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it came to stop over the place where the child was found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Note the author's description of the star. Have you ever gone on to Google Maps and you ask for directions and you see that little automobile kind of moving along? I love that little, it shows you where you are and it leads you, you know, to the promised land. The star, exactly. And that star, oh, Starbucks. Kelly. Oh, I'm speechless. Starbucks. When you go to the barista this week, say, the star led me here. And Kelly told me. Well, you see, like that little thing on your Google Maps, It's a mobile star. It went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over. This, friends, this is like a major hyperlink to another part of the biblical story. It's the exact language used in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for how Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, led his wandering people through the desert by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And this is so cool, friends. It would stop. When it would stop and where would it stop? over the very place in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. The one place where heaven and earth came together. Where does Luke say the star stops? Over the place where King Jesus laid, friends. This new place where heaven and earth come together is not a building managed by powerful religious elite and Bible scholars. Can you say amen to that? No, heaven and earth now come together in a person. And that person's name is Jesus, a vulnerable child. This is amazing news. This is life-changing news. This is history-shifting news. So let's pause and compare the radically different responses of the Magi and Herod to the child king, Jesus. The Magi's responses, Luke says, they rejoiced, with, quote, mega sphodra. The Greek word is with joy, great exceedingly. It's, it's, it's redundant. My lexicon defined mega sphodra to joy to the max. In contrast, Herod is agitated, disturbed, threatened, jealous, even murderous. One of the saddest events recorded in all of history follows in this passage the Bethlehem genocide. Herod will have every infant boy in the town executed. There will be huge wailing among the moms of Bethlehem. King Jesus provokes radically different responses. Psalm 118 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus 
today and through history is viewed either as a stumbling block or as a foundation stone. As a threat to my self-lordship or as a delight, a secure rock upon which I can build my identity. Who is Jesus to you? A stumbling block or a foundation stone? Verse 11. After they came to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures. By the way, the Greek word is thesauruses. Thesauruses. They opened their thesauruses. If you like words, you love that. (laughs) And presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their country by an alternative route. They looked on their Google Maps and went, avoided all the Roman guards. How do the Magi react when they see the child? They fall down on their faces before him in reverence and worship and in radical generosity. They open their treasures, presenting this child king with gifts, gold fit for a king, frankincense, sense fit for a priest and myrrh fit for a burial all hints of the mission of Jesus so can I engage in a little bit more of Christmas deconstruction with you okay Paul (laughs) Christmas Christmas cards often portray the magi bowing before a chubby white cherub baby with a halo Forgive me, but i got to tell you the truth. He's probably not chubby. His parents were poor refugees. He was definitely not white. Picture a Middle Eastern baby. And these magi did not see a baby with a halo. He was an ordinary human toddler, like my grandson Macklin, a pooping, whining, giggling, awkward, stumbling, stuffy nose, always exploring little monkey child. (laughs) Any of you have any of those? Little monkey child. He's just on this mission of life to find more stuff. Jesus was fully human, friends, at every stage in his development. So here's the question. No halo. How did the Magi recognize this child as a king deserving their worship? They needed revelation from God. This is my whole point this morning. We cannot know God apart from God's work of revelation. I'm not talking, by the way, about the last book of the Bible called Revelation, but the core Christian doctrine by that name. A biblical theology of revelation asserts that I cannot seek God if God does not first seek me. I cannot see God if God does not first open my blind eyes. Friends, the Magi needed the star. Amen? The Magi needed the scriptures. This is the God of the Bible, a God of revelation who relentlessly seeks us out, especially those on the outside. The great irony of the gospel is this. Religious insiders miss the Savior right under their nose. And pagan outsiders looked listened, followed, and worshipped. How's that for an irony? Magi were likely men in their own cultures who had it all. They had position, status, wisdom, and wealth. But they knew there was more. They knew there was more, but they needed revelation to find it. 
The Magi story, the Epiphany story, provides a window into the beautiful biblical theology of Revelation. God's revelation is given in creation. God pointed their way through the star, but life is not in the stars. Amen? We need more. God's revelation is given much more clearly in Scripture. God pointed their way through the Bible, specifically the words of the prophet Micah, but life is not found in the Bible alone. We need more. Amen? God's revelation is given most perfectly in the incarnation, in the in-the-flesh person of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. This is why I believe the star was a manifestation of the pillar of fire. God, through his Spirit and that pillar, pointed the way to the Magi to find a person, and in that person is hope and meaning and purpose and answers to all those questions we ask, the great first order questions. Amen? This person is Jesus, the Messiah and King. Biblical scholar Dale Brunner says, the star brings us to Jerusalem, only scripture brings us to Bethlehem. God's revelation and creation raises the questions and begins the quest. God's revelation in scripture gives us a preliminary answer and directs the quest, but only God's revelation in Christ satisfies the quest. Amen? Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. This is incredibly good news. God is relentlessly seeking all of us, no matter how far you are or have been from God. God is seeking everyone in your world, no matter how far they are or have been from God. Can you say amen to that? His plan, and you see this throughout the New Testament, is to call those near and far into a new covenant family and to display his glory to this dark world through that new family. And so, as we begin a new year, I have some questions for you. Who do you identify with in this story? Some of us are little Herods. <laughs> we resist all other rivals to Lord Self desperately seeking to maintain our own control of our world. We can appreciate Jesus as a good religious figure or as a guide that call on when we really need him, but not as a rival king. We work really hard to keep Jesus in a small religious box, take him out maybe at Christmas and Easter, but not as the Lord of our everyday lives. Friends, if you are a Herod, Jesus is calling you. The Apostle Paul was a major little Herod. And what did he do? He called him, knocked him off his horse, and transformed his life. There's hope for Herods. Amen? Amen. Some of us can relate to the religious insiders. We claim to know God. We have a lot of Bible knowledge. We regularly attend church, listen to sermons, read Christian books. But we miss what King Jesus is doing right under our noses. He's calling us to follow him as king right here and now, and we're missing it. And then some of us are like the Magi. We just know there's something more. We're on a quest. We're willing to step out and explore, but we're not there yet. Who do you identify with? I want to invite you to the quest in 2023. 
and I'm going to talk about resolutions, by the way. Based on a U.S. poll in the New York Post, it takes just 32 days for the average American to break their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> now, just notice on Craigslist, starting in February, how many exercise machines are for sale? <laughs> how many diet plans have been abandoned? Can I go on? 68% report giving up their resolutions even sooner. In fact, one in seven Americans actually never believe they'll see their resolution through in the first place. I thought it was more than that. Why do we so often fail to keep our resolutions? A whole lot of ink is spilled on this question. There are many, many reasons. But for one of the biggest hindrances in my own life has been this. Could it be that I failed to make sustained changes in my life because I try to do them all alone. So, can I tell you about my experience with yoga? <laughs> For the balance of my adult life, I've had really good, thoughtful, smart people say to me, after hearing me whine about muscle stiffness, lack of sleep, on and on and on, you should try yoga. I knew they were right, but I just kind of said, talk to the hand. I'm not a yoga-type guy. I even went on YouTube and watched a, several yoga tutorials, but I never actually did yoga. I kept putting it off. I had to get to the point where the pain of my not doing yoga became greater than the pain of doing yoga. So I gave in and took a seven-week yoga class with a seasoned hippie in Morro Bay. It was, it was in a crystal, I don't know if you know that little kind of new age chapel. <laughs> it, was, it was surreal. It was definitely a place where magi came. And so I loved it. But for seven weeks, I learned key skills and how to build them into the routines of my life. Seven weeks that provided me a sense of community, friendship, encouragement, and what I needed most, accountability, to jumpstart a new habit. Seven weeks is a really good season to start a new good habit. I have been using those skills ever since, at least five times a week. But it wouldn't have started if I didn't have that community to jumpstart the new rhythms, the healthy rhythms in my life. It's the same way in our spiritual formation. We intend it, we listen to sermons about it, we read books about it, but we actually don't do the skills that bring about spiritual health. And when a crisis comes, as happens in real life, we find ourselves grasping for an anchor. But it doesn't have to be this way, friends. We can live more proactive rather than reactive lives. Amen? You can be a proactive follower of Jesus. We can live in community with a band of brothers and sisters with whom we walk if real changes to happen. And that's been my story. The greatest changes in my life, including those in this past year, have happened through my band of brothers and sisters with whom I share small group and ministry. You see, we say every week, can you say it with me? We are disciples who walk. By the way, it doesn't say walk accidentally with God. We walk. 
Choosing. Choosing. And choosing. It's a daily choice, and we need a band of brothers and sisters to live into those freedom rhythms. Those are all choices that protect our freedom in the gospel, but we need a band of brothers and sisters. And so as we begin a new year, I'm inviting you onto the path. We have a pathway, and there's a place wherever you're on the journey. If you're a magi, if you're one of the religious elite, uh, even a Herod, you're welcome on this pathway. (laughs) Wherever you're at in your journey towards faith, in faith, we invite you to find a band of brothers and sisters this year to walk with you. Our website has all of these opportunities listed on it, and I have this cool little pathway card in the back credenza if you want to check that out. But I want to invite you to don't do this journey alone. I think that's one of the key reasons our intentions don't become action, is we don't have a community with whom we are accountable to do that life together with. And so what is Matthew 2 all about? It's a tale of two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. One more time. King Herod, King Jesus. King Herod was a ruthless, callous, political schemer, jealous of all rivals. He was powerful and wealthy. He gained and maintained his power by sheer ambition, bullying, and deception, orchestrating alliances only as long as they served his own self-serving purposes. Contrast King Jesus. (laughs) Who came to us. If you're watching uh, on live stream, you're missing a whole lot here. Jesus, King Jesus came to us as a vulnerable child with no royal courtiers to guard him, no palace, no army. He was conceived out of wedlock to teenage parents from a blue-collar town up north. Many would conclude from his life and ministry that he was a total failure as a Messiah. He failed to fulfill his people's hopes and expectations to vindicate Israel and become a political deliverer. Instead, he was crowned with thorns and lifted up on a cross rather than a throne. A cross marked with the words, by the way, by another Roman official, This is the king of the Jews. Friends, this is a very different kind of king than our world knows. A king who gives his life away. A king who rules through suffering love. And his father was delighted to raise him up and make him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's one beautiful passage I want to leave you with that connects I'm trusting you're going to see us again before Easter. But this connects (laughs) Christmas and Easter in one passage. It's from Philippians chapter 2. Paul the Apostle says, This is how you should think among yourselves. With the mind you have, because you belong to the Messiah, King Jesus. Can you read it with me? Who, though he was in God's form, did not regard his equality with God, as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of humans. And then having human appearance, he humbled himself 
and became obedient even to death. Yes, even death on a cross. And so, keep going, God has greatly exalted him. And to him, in his favor, has given the name which is over all names. That now, at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow on earth to and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you say amen? Friends, I just want to, I want to appeal to you. You can't ignore this Jesus. He's calling you to respond. You can't remain neutral in his presence. Those magi went home changed. He deserves to be the king in your life. If this is true about King Jesus, I want to ask you, what difference does it make in your life this year? This king deserves your love. He deserves your loyalty. He deserves your allegiance. He deserves your worship. He deserves to be the organizing center of your life, your family, your schedule, your relationships, your finances, your sexuality, your work, your neighborhood, your community, and your world. Amen? He deserves to be the very foundation of your story, your identity, your worth, your purpose, and your mission in life. This Jesus deserves to be your king. Amen. Let's pray. As the worship team comes up, let's pray together. King Jesus, I invite you to rule and reign in every corner of my life, in the places where I am like Herod, resisting any rival Lord. I humble myself. I give up the job of running my life and my world. Instead of seeing you as a stumbling block, I decide to build my life on you. For those of us that are kind of like the religious insiders, we have a lot of God knowledge, God talk, God information. But we're missing the king right under our nose and what he's doing. We're just too busy with our religious self-improvement projects. And some of us are like the Magi, like Rumi. We're on a quest. We know there's got to be something more to this life. And we're willing to travel and explore and wrestle and seek and follow revelation to that place where the pillar of fire stops over a person and that person deserves everything in our lives his name is Jesus Holy Spirit I pray that as we go into this year please make our church like the star where people in dark places can follow and see you and us and come to find the king let the churches throughout the five cities, throughout the central coast, be like lampstands this year to bring light and life into dark places, into this community and world, and give us the privilege of being a part of that. King Jesus, we welcome you into 2023. Can you say that with me? King Jesus, we welcome you into 2023. Let's worship. 
King Jesus. Thank you for the stories we just sang, the story, Augie's story that we just heard, the stories that we shared in our refreshment time, our hopes, our gratitudes. Thank you for the story of Matthew 2. And that you go with us, Emmanuel, into this year, whatever we're facing. King Jesus goes with us. May he go with you into whatever you're facing. In Jesus' name, into this new year. And if you, uh, as you thought of those two questions, thankful for and hopeful for, there's also a lament in there, something that you're carrying into the next year that you're lamenting. I would love to pray with you and stand with you in your lament. Uh, I'm going to ask, is Lori here, one of our deacons? Yes, Lori's going to join me, and we'll be available to pray with you in your laments that you might be carrying into this next year. May the Lord Jesus... The King of Kings, bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, and give you shalom. Amen? Amen. Pastor Paul Dugan is the pastor of Mission and Discipleship at Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California, and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.